Well, happy Friday, everybody. And if you're listening to this right now, you know you're listening to the greatest air-cooled VW podcast on the market right now. Let's talk dubs. So last week, we went to Octo. George and I ran down to Octo, had a little booth set up over there. Those that stopped by the booth to say what's up. Uh, got to come by, show some support. Some people bought some merch, and some people uh, came by to say hello. So we appreciate all you guys coming out to chat with us at the Let's Talk Dubs booth. I'll keep you posted the next time we'll have another, another booth out there. Uh, one of the things that we did while I was down there was met up with Dean Kirsten from Hot VWs. He retired a few years back, photographer there for over 38 years. And Dean is one of the influential guys that's helped me and my youth and my collection of magazines get inspired to build Volkswagen. So um, I've been hunting him down for a while and uh, it was a great opportunity to be able to sit with him. This podcast will be a little bit different. We actually recorded this one on site at Dean's Diner in Lakewood, California. So it was pretty cool. We were outdoors. We hooked up the mics, connected my four track and uh, laid it down right there. So really, really cool to have this opportunity to sit and chat with Dean for a little bit. So it's awesome podcast. And uh, we hear a lot about VW history, how things started for him, a, a lot of things that have taken place in the VW scene and just just a real good conversation. So I uh, look forward to you guys enjoying it. Make sure you guys go on Apple iTunes and give us a five-star rating and also post up what you like about the podcast and some of the things. And if you have suggestions for guests or people or you know people that may be in hiding uh, right now that are influenced in the VW scene or have done something in the past, by all means, go to billletletstalkdubs.com. Shoot me an email. Let me know who you want to hear from, what you want to hear about. Uh, still have more podcasts coming on decks. You want to know how you can support the podcast? Go on letstalkdubs.com. Go to the store. Buy some merch. Tonight, I'm going to upload new pictures of my t-shirts. So I've got new t-shirts that are out. The Let's Talk Dubs shirt that has the logo and the What's Your VW Story tagline. So it's a great it's a great shirt. Cool addition to any of your t-shirt collections that you got. And we have them in black. So uh, all car guys get black shirts. I do make some special orders in white. So we do have some white ones in stock as well. But uh, feel free to go on the podcast page at letstalkdubs.com forward slash store and go on there, support the podcast. We keep turning them out and uh, I can pay for some of the equipment stuff that I got. But other than that, not really doing it for the money, doing it for the love. So, uh, but you know, support your boy. Don't forget. Anyway, uh, look forward to you guys enjoying this podcast. Also listen to the very end. So you get to hear shout outs, people that support the podcast. Without any further ado, let's listen to Dean Kirsten with Hot VWs. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon to have around the house. The 1974 Volkswagen, Hey everybody, on today's podcast, I've got a special guest with us here today. All of you that are magazine collectors and people that have been in the VW hobby for a long time are going to be very, very familiar with our next guest. I'm excited to have him on. I asked him. I've been hunting him down for a long time, and I finally have uh, Dean Kirsten with formerly of Hot VWs uh, on the podcast today, and uh, we're going to sit down. we got a lot to talk about, so hope you guys are excited as I am. Uh, Dean, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me over. It took us a while to get together, but uh, today's a good day to do this. Yeah. So we were at the Octo event. Let everybody know if you're hearing a little bit of a little bit of background noise. We were actually recording this at Dale's Diner over here in Lakewood, right? Is that where we're at? That's what they say. So now that I got you on the podcast, what we start the podcast always with is your VW story. So what is your <clears throat> VW story? Well, ironically, it's it started in Lakewood. Um, I grew up in La Habra, which is about 20 miles from here, 
1972, I bought my, my first Volkswagen in Lakewood, probably about five minutes from here, from a girl. I paid, I think, 850 bucks for it. And um, VW Blue was a completely stock deal. And um, I think that was on a Saturday. And I drove it home. And it didn't run that. It was supposedly had a rebuilt motor in it, but it didn't run that great. So I decided to take the carburetor apart and clean it and do a tune-up on it, which I did. But I forgot to do one little thing. There's the little brass squirter on top. Yeah. Well, I just pushed it in. I didn't tap it in. So when I went for my first road test on Sunday morning, that piece fell in the engine and got mangled up in one of the combustion chambers and sounded like I blew the motor up. And so I had to limp this thing home, and I went up in my—I was living at home at the time. I told my dad, I said, I just blew up that engine. And he goes, what are you talking about? You mean the car you just bought yesterday? I go, yeah, I just blew it up. So he wasn't too happy about my choices, but uh, that kind of forced me to uh, get into the engine right away. And uh, with that, I dropped the engine. for That's the first VW engine I ever took, up, took out of the car and put on the ground. And— um, took the heads off it and found out what my mistake was. Um, but I decided that uh, I didn't want to put it back to stock. So that's when I decided to uh, spend a little bit extra money and uh, put some performance parts. And so I went to Auto House in uh, Buena Park and bought a lot of stuff. And that's really how it started. And what, and what year was this? I'm saying late 72. So late 72, this is taking place. And then, so now you start going down the road of most all VW enthusiasts where uh, you've done some damage. You get this car, you're excited by the look, the feel, you get in it. Now you did some personal damage due to carelessness. Yeah. I think everybody, every one of us has smacked the cylinder head. It's got those impressions where you get to watch the pattern of what you drop down the uh, manifold do. Yep. And so now you go to Auto Haas, you get the stuff, and you now start going down the road of performance. Right. So at that time, it was a stock 1500. And so I bought a uh, and actually the guy that waited on me was John Lazenby, who turned out to be a DKP member, I found out later. Yeah. And he's the first guy that helped me. And uh, he says, uh, for 129 bucks, you can get an SS exhaust system with a glass pack. That's pre uh, QP mufflers, an O10 distributor and a Holly bug spray. And a Santana pulley for 129 bucks. So I bought all that, and then I bought some uh, 85.5s to make it a 1600. And then I took the heads to Jay Steele and Whittier and had them fly cut because of that head had uh, all those impressions of those carburetor part, and raised the compression a little bit, and put it all back together and got it back on the road. And um, so that was my first tuned engine that I built based on a 1500. And that's back when the progressives were all the rage. Like that was no, the that's gear. actually pre-progressive. Right then, the only carburetors that we used on the street were the Zenith 32NDX right. and the Holly Bug Spray. So the that's real early before the Pino carburetor came in. And so the Zenith was that a pretty solid carb back yes, in the day? Yes, that was really the preferred carburetor for off-road use. Yeah, and so you, so, but you were mostly a street guy. Yes, and then after that. How many Volkswagens do you start to own after this? Are you just are you just a one car guy? I'm or? a one car guy just because I'm still living at home. I'm going to college in Fullerton, 
And uh, that car has to be running each day to get me to school. Sure. And so, uh, no, I was barely trying to, you know, make, and I was working part-time at uh, Market Basket as a checker. And uh, so as time went on, you know, we put a Hearst shifter in it and, um, you know, I added a few things to it. And then uh, one of my part-time jobs, I was working in La Habra at uh, Bob's Muffler and my car was parked out there and... And Jim Edmondson drove by one day and with his VW and pulled over and introduced himself. Now, Jim Edmondson is also a member of DKP. And he said, uh, he told me who he was, and I see you're working on your VW. And I told him kind of what my plan was to put wide fenders on it and Chevy rims and chrome. And he's like, <laughs> no, 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 you, no, you don't need to do that. And he came by, he was selling insurance door to door. And so he, one day he brought his bug and that was the first time I ever saw what later became the California look. So here's a 63 bug, uh, no bumpers, a chrome rims, um, lowered. And, um, I'd never seen a car like that. And so he gave me a ride and yeah. it was, a. Uh, at that time, it was an 1835 with the heads off of the underdog on it, 48 IDAs, close ratio gears, no interior, and solid mounts. And that was it. Yeah, just a monster, and just a so, rocket ship. And then he was the one that suggested I go to uh, a club meeting. At He said, every Sunday over on Chestnut in Anaheim, DKP has a meeting. He says, you need to come over and see the cars. And that's that's really how I got started with the club and started the meeting these guys. And what what year is this? Mm, I'm saying that's 73 now, 73 going into 74. So now we know today the rules for DK, for, for uh, DKP are specific. The club's pretty limited. I mean, it's going to be your you, you've got to be probably kind of one of the guys that hangs out quite a bit with the with the guys already in the club, which is usually how most clubs work. But. You've also got to have a fast car. Now, back then, did they have certain things that look, your car's got to look like this, be like this, and and have these standards? I would think so. Um, they had a top 10 board in their uh, clubhouse, and it was underdog was number one, and then um, and then the, the fastest cars, and you would challenge the next guy up to get on that list. So performance was the main key to this this club, and... And uh, most of them didn't have bumpers, um, and that was pre-T-bars. I mean, they had those big Nerf bars, but that really wasn't what they wanted. Some of them had the buggy bunk bumpers, the little tube the bumpers tubes, yeah. that came off like the Manx, and uh, most of them just didn't have any bumpers. And what people might not realize nowadays is back then, you guys would get hassled by the law. Like with no bumpers, car too low. I mean, like there's the famous the cow look pitch where they're measuring the front headlight. Right. But there's a myriad of things that you guys were doing in your cars that were big no-nos on the street. So I was going to school in Fullerton and driving that bug. And by then, now I had a selected drop on it. So it was lowered and the bumpers are off it. And Fullerton police were pit bulls on modified cars. So they got all these hot riders coming out of Fullerton College, and they would just sit there on Harbor Boulevard and nail us. And so I got nailed. And so I got nailed for no bumpers, and that's the first fix-it ticket I ever had. And so I says, well, <laughs> what do I do? He says, well, you got to put the bumpers back on. So he gives me the ticket. He says, you got to get this signed off. So, fine. So a couple days later, I put the stock bumpers back on, 
and I go down to the police department after school, and uh, the guy comes out and signs it off. He goes, yeah, it's good. I says, so am I done? And he says, yeah, yeah, you're done. Okay. So I just took the ticket, and I don't know if I threw it away or just threw it in my <laughs> pouch in the door. And everything was fine and dandy till about mm, about a month later. Um, it's Sunday morning, seven o'clock at my and I'm at my parents' house, and my uncle and aunt are even in town on vacation. And the doorbell rings, and I'm still asleep, and my parents are up, and it's the La Habra Police Department with a warrant for my arrest. Really? And so my mom goes, Dean, there's somebody here to see you. Your mom blew you in. Oh, she didn't open the back door and go, run, son. <laughs> and he says, well, we have a warrant for your arrest for failure to appear. And so with my aunt and uncle and my mom and dad all standing and staring at me, I get hauled away. Oh, get out of here. Yep. They came to your house and yep. got you? Sunday morning. For a fix-it ticket? Yep. Well, failure to appear. Failure to appear, yeah. And so they hauled me away. And so that was my uh, – so I have a, a – a, 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 police record for that by the way <laughs> bad boys for life <laughs> and so went to the police department and i want a copy of that mugshot and uh fingerprinted photos and luckily i had about i had just got paid and so i got myself out of jail it was like 80 dollars bail and i got home and my dad was so pissed oh my god yeah and he says so what's this all about and i says well I, I didn't have bumpers on my car and I put them on, but I didn't know about that. And he says, well, are, are the bumpers on your car right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> I had taken them back off, of course. Right. So I heard, a, you know, probably the first time my dad ever used a you know, F word on me. Right. And so anyway, so I went to uh, court and um, the judge just said, are your bumpers on your car now? I go, yes. And so we went, the bailiff went out, looked at it. And, <laughs> That was it. Come on. So that that's my backstory on the lowering uh, and uh, fix-it tickets. So that's crazy. So the police come to your house to arrest you for a failure to appear. The bailiff goes outside to check your car. Yes. I mean, so Fullerton was like small town back in those days. Oh, like, yeah. So you were it was kind of countryside a little bit, or I mean, it no, was still, no, it was still suburbs, it, right? It was just a feeding frenzy because you know we had all these fifty-five Chevys with straight axles and loud exhaust, and they, it was just as we're coming out, they would guys on motorcycles would just pull they us just over pop, one yeah. after another after another, yeah. And that was one of many. I got busted for being too low, of course, and excessive noise, and so by now I'm pretty tight with the club and they go oh we got fix it for all this stuff so when it's the selected drops if you've had them down too low for a long time they don't come back up right it, it takes it a kind set. of up yeah so since it's a 67 it's a ball joint front end so they had taken stock shocks and extended them the full length and arc welded them so they're rigid so you you put those on it now the car's like 32 inches high in the hot and it rides like crap but it gets you signed off then you take them off and he put your shocks back on huh. then the exhaust system everybody had the sns small three bolt flange then and if you got a and there was not qp muffler hadn't come out yet right so it was glass bags and so we would take a tin plate and drill some holes in it and we'd put it where the gasket is and so almost no exhaust is coming out the other end and the car 
wouldn't even go over like 40 miles an hour. So we'd go down there, same thing, get it checked off and rev it up and take the plate back off and go back to school. What would they, was, it, was it a noise ordinance they were giving you tickets yeah. on? Yeah, just they didn't have any DB. They just, it was just, a, you know. Just some guy like giving you a thumbs up or yeah, thumbs like, down. Yeah, it's too loud, you know. And that was when they had like the, 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 the three-bolt flange and just a glass pack with, yes, it, with like a right. trumpet on it. That's, that's it. right. And those things were raspy. Yep, yep. I mean, I think the process is any anybody that gets a VW, their their most exciting time and their most embarrassing memory is when they had a stinger on their car because the stingers <laughs> sound so good, yeah. but nobody ever wants to be caught with a stinger. Yep. So yep. now you're now you're in DKP. You're part of the club. Well, yeah. It, I need to back up a little bit. Sure. So the club now, I, I'm going to the meetings and I'm learning a lot, hanging around these guys, and I get to meet you know Ron Fleming and Greg Aronson. And start going to their shop because everybody says, well, that's where we all work on our cars. Um, and so that's so I started working there part time. And that's where I started learning more about how to rebuild the end. I could do the lower end, I could do the top end, but Ron Fleming is the one that showed me how to do a complete engine. And so from that point on, I've always built my own engines. And so I learned a lot. But plus, we were going to the drags a lot uh, to Bakersfield and the Winter Nationals. And there again, that's when I became closer friends with uh, the Chalet brothers and uh, Dave Andrews and Daryl Vatone and those guys. And so um, I got to be see firsthand what how those cars were being built and tuned in the dyno sessions at night. And um, and so I really started learning a lot. And I mean, you so when you say you're going to Bakersfield, like you're doing NHRA racing at the time. Uh, that was the March meet. So the March meet was not NHRA at that time. That was put on by the Smokers, which was a club based in uh, uh, Bakersfield. And every so the Winter Nationals at Pomona would be February, and then the March meet would be the early March. And they ran modified eliminators, so the VWs had a chance of you know doing good. And and a number of times, Volkswagens won modified eliminator at Bakersfield. Now, modified eliminator was an, was it an open class, open to more than just Volkswagens? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And what was what was the what was the limitations that kept it equal for Volkswagens? It, they had the Volkswagens fell into in the early years uh, either I gas or J or K excuse me I gas and H gas mm -hmm. depending upon the motor size so if it's if it was a 2000 cc motor it'd probably run I if it was a uh, a 2200 or a 2100 it was probably closer to H gas depending upon the weight and then later on they started out with a modified compact which was more of a stock sedan with a um with it, it had to have the stock pan seats in it and it had to have all the lights and everything so you had a modified and b modified became a real popular class for the vws and you guys would race against v8s and all that stuff up there or was it just a vw only class to to win your class you would run against other uh, in uh, in h gas you would have some six cylinder cars like an anglia with a six cylinder or a pin or something like that um and then if you won your class you would then go into eliminations, and then class winners would run against each other to a modified eliminator. So the Volkswagen, if it won its class, which it usually did in iGas, it would then have to run the big boys. Oh, really? And what were you guys running time-wise back then? iGas would have been um, 1190s, 1180s, and then HGas would have been more like uh, 1140s. So you guys were still, I mean, driving some fast cars. I mean, those are fast times today, especially for cars that, I mean, 
these were not streetable cars or these no, were, these yeah were these like, were some evil handling suckers boy <laughs> yeah like take as much weight as you can out of there crank yeah. the compression yeah. and, and yeah. just if you ever look at the Schley Brothers uh, Lightning Bug 2 and look at the, how many holes are drilled into it, that car is extremely light. Right. It'll yeah. get wadded up pretty quick. Yeah. So it's... Um, and so how do we get from you being an enthusiast to eventually working your way over to Hot VWs? So I'm working... Uh, so I'm going to school and I'm working at Fleming and & Aronson. And my car is almost done. It's got a Becker paint job, Brad's interior. It's got Dino wheels on it, IDAs. It's got uh, Jim Holmes's car is, you know, was there most of the time. So then we bring in Gerald Haddiff. So Ger... Sure. So your start at Hot VWs. So I was working at Fleming and Aronson, going to school part-time, and Gerald Haddiff was a photographer that did a lot of uh, NHRA stuff and started doing Volkswagen stories in some of the bigger books. And he was also doing some freelance stuff for Hot VWs. And he was good friends with uh, Ron Fleming and Greg Aronson because they had Tar Baby by now. Yeah. And, um, and so he said, you know, you guys have these cars that are so different. I think that's a hell of a story. So he went to Jim Wright and Tom Chambers of Hot VWs and said, you know, there's a, a style of cars that's coming out of Anaheim in Orange County that you guys haven't done anything on. And I think it would make a good story. And he beat on him, and Jim was like, eh, I don't know about this weird s small tire, no bumper thing. I just, it just doesn't have the possess anyway so he finally gets his way so one day i'm at the shop working and he goes uh yeah i finally convinced him to do a story on these cars and he says i'm gonna do five of them and he says i'm gonna do jim holmes's car and he says i think i'm gonna do your car too and i'm like wow that's really cool and then he went to uh uh mark bueller uh roger greco and um Oh, the guy in Whittier, uh, uh, Mike Lemire. And so those were the cars that he shot for that first issue. And so and that first issue of the first Cal look issue, the first Cal look, look, because yeah. prior to this, all the primary focus of dune buggies and hot VWs is dune buggies or pretty much. So conversion, the, st the street and market really hadn't exploded yet. Um, it was primarily sand rails, off-road racing, a few streetcars, but nothing with big performance in them. So it was kind of a, a – that's why I think Jim had some hesitations because he just didn't think the street market was that strong. Well, it was about to. And so uh, Jer shot all of our cars, and then that was in December of 1974. And the, the magazine came out in late January of 75 and it's the February it's the 70, February 75 issue. That's the most famous one. And so that so ultimately this is your friend we're talking about. He he's the photographer, he's the he's the contributing editor. He well he was the photographer and and the well actually he didn't write the story. He but, contributed the story the the photos. So he's the one that shot that world famous picture of the cow look yeah, issue. Yeah, with Jim Holmes' car, car and Linda Dill with a cop, and that's over on Mendoza Street over in Costa Mesa, and that's where all that happened. So he's the one that did it. 
And when that magazine hit, people went crazy. Really? Like the whole, st- so the, the, all the street guys are finally like, man, we're getting our recognition yeah, now. Because yeah, yeah. the, the scene's been going on for a while at this point. I mean, That's true. They, they've been racing since the late 60s. And VWs, even in the VW world, aren't getting respected, right? The drag races aren't getting the respect because the focus from the commercial side is like dune buggies, conversion cars, funky MG kits and mm-hmm. stuff like that is where the magazines are right. going. And this is the closest tie-in with drag racing that the streetcars had ever seen. You know, up to now they were real mild, and there was no parts used on both cars. Well, now it is. They're the wheels, the BRM wheels. Uh, by it was probably the best example. We had to have those wheels because that's what you know. That's what Daryl Vatone used and Dean Lowry. Well, we got to. But have those them. wheels, the original BRMs, are super light. Yeah, they're magnesium. Very dangerous, yet super. I mean, yeah. Well, but brand back then they weren't that old, so you know they hadn't been on the street more than you know four or five years. Well, now yeah. fifty years later, a BRMs, I don't think so. Yeah. So um, that's really when things took off. So right after that story came out, um, I sold my street car minus the engine, and I wanted to get into sand rails, and so I decided to build a motor for my sand rail based on my street motor that I had taken out of my blue car and so I built this motor uh, and I wrote a letter to Tom Chambers the editor of Hot VWs and I introduced myself and said you know I'm one of the guys that was in that Cal look issue and I built a new motor for the for uh, sand rail and I've dyno tested and all this and would you be interested and he wrote me right back and says absolutely and that's how I got to know Tom Chambers and Tom Chambers was the editor the editor at the and time. so um he did a story with me on the, and we obviously hit it off. And so he started calling me during the day and said, Hey, I've got, you know, he'd asked me a technical question or what are you guys using for such and such? And so we started talking quite a bit. And um, then, so one day I came into the office about something and I met Jim Wright. We were sitting there and he says, uh, So do you take pictures? And I said, Yeah, I can, you know, I've always kind of taken pictures taking pictures at in school i don't have much camera equipment but i've always done that you didn't pull out the instamatic and impress him right there well no (laughs) yeah it's pretty close to what i had and uh so he says um but you're going to the sand dunes i go yeah we're going to glamis all the time he goes you know you might be able to do us a favor we have a distributor that distributes the magazine that based in san diego goes to glamis a lot and we'd sure like to get his car in the book so I end, they, they lend me some cameras. They go, here, use this Minolta, and here's a couple lenses, and here's some film. Go out to Gecko Park and shoot some pictures and bring it back. I said, okay. So I did it. I found this guy, and we shot. Guy, guy damn near ran me over, but um, <laughs> shot it and turned the pictures in. And Tom says, these are great. So that was uh, mid-'75, and I got paid for that. And you're working at this time for. A, a I'm still working part. See, I, yeah, I was working. Let's see, what's he, 75? Um, I'm actually working at the print shop now. Jim Holmes, the, the owner of the white car, and I were both uh, going through an apprenticeship in uh, color printing over in Fullerton. And um, so I had a good job, but it was nights, and I, I wasn't getting in the department I wanted to. So, anyway, so. After a few stories and sending them pictures and buying them, they started offering me a job. And so finally in 77, late 76, 77, I decided, what the hell? You know, it's 
might be kind of a neat job to take pictures and write and do Volkswagen stuff. Well, I mean, I think for all of us, I mean, enthusiasts, it's like if 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 we could get paid to document our experience and our in our hobby. I mean, what could be less of a job than that? I mean, yeah. on the surface, we see yeah. that, which I'm sure on the back end, it's a, it's a whole different grind. So, so I think what perhaps Tom saw in me that I knew. The I knew about Volkswagens. I could kind of you know work on them, and I kind of knew engines, and I kind of knew what was going on. And he needed someone on the outside because they were he was always on the inside, uh, listening to these stories. And so I think maybe he saw that uh, they need at the time they needed someone to kind of fill in. And I was just at the right spot at the right time. So I became the associate editor, and June of '77 was my first issue. Wow. That's pretty impressive. And then you're getting to ride this wave now because the whole cowlick scene is coming on strong. Lots and lots of uh, streetcar exposure now. Car shows are yeah. starting to pick up quite a bit, right? I mean, buggins are getting bigger and all this back then? Or? Yeah. So that first issue, I shot the DKP2 guys, which were kind of reforming by now. And so the cover shot was a group shot uh, that we did at Craig Park in Brea. And we, I did a couple of more cars. I did actually a little profile on DKP. So I got to do what I wanted to do is to to bring in more of the club scene and and fast street cars. Yeah, that's awesome. And then you guys started. So then the magazine started to change to doing yes technical articles. Here's how to hot rod. And then which obviously for the for the magazine business starts to bring in advertisers like, hey, we're we're selling this to your guys. So now, probably at this time, it's kind of the heyday and and. Otto Haas and these guys are racing to try to try to advertise in the magazine. Yes, I'm but this, yes, that's true to a certain extent. But the lion's share of the market now in the in the mid to late seventies is off road was just exploding. Right. So the sand buggy, the sand rail market was just a huge and Baja bugs. So it was still primarily off road, but. Uh, the more exposure we started giving to the recreational side um, and getting more into performance really opened up the advertisers in San Diego. And there was just the mother load of uh, manufacturers down there. And that's primarily where I spent uh, most of my time was going in San Diego, um, going to these shops and doing stories. And that really opened things up. So you started out doing photography and writing stories and things to that extent, but you said you were also the ad manager for a while, which that's that's a whole other side oh of the boy. business. That's the yeah. that's the pressure stress side. Yeah, sure was. So I'd been there for a few years, and Lane Evans, who was an art director for many years, and then he moved into the advertising uh, department when um, uh, I can't think of her name right now. Um, uh, it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, so uh, Lane became the ad director. Well, he, that lasted only for a few years, and him and Jim had kind of bumped heads, and so he left. Um, and so there was an opening in the advertising department, and they really hadn't started looking for anybody. And so Linda Dill, who uh, was in the circulation department, goes, Dino, you need to get in there. You need to do that job. So I said, wow, what the hell? It's good money. <laughs> so I put my hand up, and so Tom goes, yeah, why not? We need somebody to sell ads. And so I moved into the ad department. And so I did that for oh, a few years and made good money. And um, I did that and I hated it. It's the pressure. It's just, <sighs> it's you trying to go to shops and saying, advertise in our magazine so people will buy stuff from you. And you're trying to explain them the value of advertising to their customers. And I didn't like that. Yeah. And it's, a, I mean, it's a, it's a really hard deal because 
you know, some people, some people are great at, at, at doing the job and that's why they start their own company, do whatever, but they sometimes don't really think a lot about what it takes to get the exposure, yeah. you know? So it's a big difference going into a shop and say, Hey, I'd like to do a story on your new swing arms and, or your new shock absorbers. Um, they're all open. They, you know, take you to lunch Come and you're the, in. you're the best guy in town. You get right. a story in hot VWs. But you take that same opportunity, go in and say, hey, you need to spend $800 a month on an ad in Hot VW, and you got your handout looking for a check. That's a whole different ballgame, and I didn't like that. And yeah. so I had to start weighing, making a lot more money or doing what I really wanted to do. Yeah. So I ended up, eventually, I ended up going back into editorial. And then in the beginning of these days, it's the, the, the scene is mostly Southern California and, and the West Coast region. What's the first time you go outside of California to shoot something Midwest or East Coast? Uh, I remember going to Texas uh, for a bug-in that they had uh, back in the 70s. And it, like you said, it, it was the first expansion that it was that I was aware of. And unfortunately, the event really didn't go over very well, but it, they tried. I think it was in Houston, as a matter of fact. And... So as we started getting now into the 80s, uh, well, the bug-in obviously is still the big kahuna till 83 and drag day. Um, and the rest of the events just started to happen. The, the other drag race car show events were just starting to happen. But for the most part, the street market really exploded in the 80s. That's when it just over uh, overwhelmed uh, the off-roading part of our readership. And that's when it just went nuts. Yeah. And so starting to branch out and go to the other shows it's like you come from mecca over here where like the all the vw shows are the biggest vw shows that are out there and then you'll go to houston and 35 cars show up or whatever the case is and, and you're looking at these other parts of the region that are are trying to build up the scene and yet whether it's regional weather based or whatever it is it's not as friendly to the vw scene to make it so popular so watching all these other spawn offs of of the california scene coming about i mean you got to be going there and people are like hey i know you you're in the max so you have a little bit this time you've got a little bit of a celebrity profile to some degree so what we saw is that it took a while for this the 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 styles and the the equipment and the what people were doing to the cars to move east and, like, if you'd go to Florida back then, they were way behind. They were still doing the fat fenders and square headlights. And the idea of taking the bumpers off and lowering the car, that was just, they were, they looked at us like, what the heck are you guys they were doing? They like, you guys are going backwards. We're just on the Mulholland yeah. book, and you guys need to get That's right. And so it, it took a while for it to move, you because know, there wasn't, the, the communication speed was nowhere near what it is today, obviously. But it took a while for that to catch on. So we'd go back there, and it was like, well, this is not exactly what we want. But, you know, we wanted to give them as much coverage as we could. Yeah, so going back there. But, I mean, my question to you is, to, to some degree, you've got to carry some sort. I mean, when the ma – listen, I was one of those guys when I saw the magazine. I remember seeing you hat backwards snapping off pictures <laughs> at one of the classics when I first saw like, dude, dude, it's the guy from the magazine. It's the guy from the magazine. <laughs> So I think that carries a little bit of weight, right? What, what what was that like being that guy that you're just here? You're just regular old, regular old Dino, and then you go back there, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's the guy from Hot VWs. Get close to him. See if he wants something to drink. <laughs> Come on. You know, I always appreciated that, and um, 
you're working. Yeah. It's a job. And I mean, I loved it doing it for 40 years. But, you know, when I'm at one of these big events, I've got a lot to do because I'm doing it by myself or RK's doing it by himself or Bruce. And you've got to, you know, listen to the drag racing announcements. Okay, here's first round. You got to get up there, but you're shooting a car show. And so people would be, hey, you know, it's it's 95 degrees and humid in Texas. And they're, hey, how about a beer and a, and a brisket sandwich? And you're going, oh, God. I wanted to do that so bad, but you know, I just, no guys, I got to keep going. I can't stop. Yeah, there's no do-overs on no your part. do-overs, you know, and it just so. Um, and I still, I have, I have friends that I've made back then that are still friends today. So um, there, I, it, there's an art to that. There's an art to when people want to talk to you or ask you questions or just come up and say, hey, um, to spend some time with them and uh, and show that you're interested in what they have to say yeah. and what they're doing uh and then the same time you've got to move on you go guys i really need to get to the starting line because they're they just called pro stock you know and right. i gotta be there and so um and hopefully i didn't step on too many toes like oh god i don't want to yeah you know, i gotta cut you short because i gotta get out of here yeah. you know but most of the time people were just so cool and very appreciative that we were there and so at this time so we're you're now approaching the early 80s. The VW street scene's on the rise. What was the most exciting time? And, and I'm thinking maybe, and maybe that's not my question. Maybe my question is, what was it like during the Rodbuster era? During the era with the crazy super builds mm -hmm. and all this? Because that seems to be kind of, that's when it really caught my attention. And I would just go crazy over these magazines and you know what was it like the show scene like back then yeah, i would that's when uh, the jamboree the big owl had the jamboree and the shows up in, in northern california uh, that's where rk really shined he really had those cars handled he knew who was building those cars and he did such a good job and we're bringing this by now we're using models that had kind of clothes on them and um right. and it just you know it helped the circulation of the magazine for a for a while um and so uh it was huge it was the amount of um input and creativity uh that we'd never seen before in volkswagens and so that's when the industry was just exploding and our magazine circulation was just going leaps and bounds yeah, because you've got billet parts are coming on. Johnny Speed and Chrome was like, I mean, that's a whole nother story. Like with the Johnny Speed and Chrome that that all I know from my end living in that little desert town in Las <laughs> Vegas is like Johnny Speed and Chrome was the thing one day and then gone the next and not really sure what happened to Johnny Speed and Chrome. Yeah, well, John Huey had a a, a, a very um, well-established Chrome and Speed shop uh, in uh, was over there off of Beach Boulevard. Uh, off, excuse me, off of Rosecrans. And so he was well established in the V8 world. And then he could see that this Volkswagen thing was just exploding. So he kind of moved over into Volkswagen stuff. And then that's when his mar his store just exploded. And and then he, at one time, they were running like six or seven, eight pages uh, every month in the yeah. back of the book because they were, and, you know, and I had people say, are those guys really selling that much stuff? And I go, yeah. That's he said crazy. they're spending, you know, 30, 40 grand a month with you guys. And I said, oh, they're killing them. And wow. so you'd hear stories of their competitors would park across the street from some of these shops, like small car accessories or car craft or Barrett. And they would sit across the street and say, I want to see what's going on here. So they're counting people walking through the door. And the UPS trucks backing up. 
and they just goes, I can't even believe how many UPS trucks are. mail order. Mail order was gigantic. And these guys would just go, I can't believe they're selling this much stuff. That's nuts. Yeah, because, listen, it was all over Vegas. I mean, every, every car had Johnny Speed and Crow. So did they have an actual fabrication show? Like, they would, they would bill it, manufacture the stuff there until overseas stuff came in? Or yeah, were they one of the first they ones had, going overseas? I, I, I believe Johnny had a – in fact, I know he had a fiberglass plant just like de-engineering did. I think it was in Ontario where they did all the Baja kits and all the fiberglass pieces. Um, and they had a fabrication shop that would do the, the uh, dune buggy frames and the – uh, Baja bug bumpers um, and the roll bars and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, Johnny definitely had his own manufacturing part of it. And then, obviously, then that later on, they were bringing the stuff in from overseas. And since you were around back then, do you know what happened? Was it just a, ch- a shift in the economy, a shift in the, the VW scene? I mean, what what happened? Um, Boy... I, I'm trying to remember it, how it wound down for, for John Huey. Um, I know Tom Rafferty was a, his general manager or a big guy there, and he went in, started his own company. Uh, Sadler, I think, I believe Rick Sadler worked there for a while, and he went to work for uh, de-engineering. So I, I think some of the employees moved on and uh, started their own. But you know, the reason that, that Johnny Speed and Chrome kind of faded away is – um, I know that the building that he owned on the corner of Manchester and Beach Boulevard was worth a small fortune because that was all dealerships and that was a store. And he had bought that back in the 60s. So I think it got to the point where the building was worth so much money that he finally says, you know, why do I need to do this? Right. Why don't you look if some of my key employees just left? I don't need to keep beating yeah. my head against the wall. Right. Yeah, no, right. I get it. I get it. So. When you're seeing cars, when the builds start getting, and I think this may be before, like, the, I'll wait for that uh, car to go by there. It was a, uh, believe it or not, that was a uh, Ford uh, Fusion. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, back in those back in those days with when, like, um, Top Gun comes out, cars like that, there was so much, there was so much crazy innovation going on back in those days in the 80s. It was like, it was almost like what's next everything that would come out in the magazine and i think we started to see some of the stuff from the east coast come out in the midwest you'd see a couple builds come out from there but in that era of the magazines let's say from the 70s to the early 90s what is your most memorable era that just stands out to you and why hmm. well from a technical standpoint I think uh, in the 80s, we saw probably the best technical stories that came to the readership and, you know, not by me, by all the staff members. And because there were such major modifications being done on these cars, like chop top, suicide doors, removing the gutters, um, Frenching the aerials and all those things that they, you know, shaving the chrome, obviously, uh, there was some really good hardcore tech stuff that uh, the, the readers loved. And that's why they kept those magazines forever. And I think that was really made the book so strong in the 80s. Yeah. One of the one of my favorite go to go to books is the how to customize your Volkswagen issue. I think it's a it's a 1989 issue pink hawaiian bug on right, the cover right and one of the reason that thing was like like the vw bible to me is i would go to it because it had the year by year breakdown with every model change everything that it had how to lower how to do louvers how to do yeah. all this stuff and 
it was just such a resource for me where I became like this little expert just by sitting there, not yeah. on a Volkswagen yeah. reading. I could walk down the street and tell you what year the car was because they lost a door that, you know, they put a, a key handle on a 64 passenger door in 1964. So if it's got the wide taillight and the peanuts and the keyhole on the passenger side, it's a 64. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I studied all these right. things being an obsessed teenager looking at all these things in the magazine. And so I'm I'm super thankful for those issues. I mean, I have a huge collection of hot VWs, and I'm trying to get further and older collections. One of the things that uh, always impressed me was an editorial that I think Rick Vogelin did for Carcraft Magazine back in the 70s, and I'll never forget this. And he he said that that the key to a an enthusiast automobile magazine is to get the reader in his garage. Because if he's sitting on the couch watching TV, he's not doing anything. He's, his car's not doing anything. He's not doing anything for the industry. The participation is down. But if you can get him off the couch and get him in the garage and start working on the car, then the cycle begins. He starts yeah. getting more interested in his car. He starts buying parts. He starts going to the events. And and that's when the industry moves ahead. And I and I'll never forget that that's really what a, a magazine like Hot VWs um, did back then and should continue to do is to keep that enthusiasm and to give the reader the confidence to go out and you can do this. You can put a distributor on your car and we're going to show you how to do it. It's not that hard and you can get this car can run better. Yeah, the, the, the technical stuff, I mean, between I think between the magazines and the idiot book is like what helped the VW guys just continue to progress in, in becoming, it, it's like a hobby that creates so many enthusiasts that turn into business owners. Yeah. You know, like yeah. every guy that owns a shop started out like, well, I just used to build this and do that. And then all my friends liked it, so they wanted one. And then I made 10, and then they made more, and now they started a small business. And... It's one of the most fascinating hobbies where I don't think I've ever seen that, even in the hot rod business where I have seen that many enthusiasts that evolve into businesses. Because really you're talking about in Southern California, you've got hundreds of businesses that are VW related, whether it's parts, repair, or whatever the case is. And it all started with just some guy picking up a magazine, buying a car, yeah. and then realizing like, hey, I can do this myself. Yeah. yeah. So guys like... Greg Aronson and, and Ron Fleming, they started in Greg's garage. Right. And so guys would bring cars in and have them fixed. And until Greg's dad had a fit and says, guys, we can't do this anymore. And the city started coming by. He goes, you guys got cars parked out here all over the place. And so they were I finally said, yeah, what the heck? So they rented a building on Howell Street. But that's a perfect example of two enthusiasts that got going and uh, turned a garage hobby into a 40 year 45 year old business very yeah. successful no it's i mean it's it's just it's just such an awesome hobby that gives back like that it gives people a career and a purpose and so many other things so i wanted to get into some of the dynamics of the competition of being in the magazines like you guys versus vw trends and and the the way that you guys would fight for coverage on shows and how those types of things would happen. What what was that like, and when was it at its most aggressive in regards to that? And was there that kind of rivalry? So over the years, we had Hot BWs had uh, several magazines that we competed with. Early in early years was Volkswagen Greats, which turned into VW Porsche. Um, 
they we would see them at the bug ins and some of the events and we had a little crossover with some of the car features um, but primarily i think the biggest competition we had was vw trends when they came out the second time in the um and they were monthly and so here we are we're at all the major events together um and competing for the the best cars um and yes it was a competition but i th- it during that period of time uh i think rk really uh set the the pace as far as what a car feature should look like and so guys were that's what they wanted they wanted rk to shoot his car, their cars and so when the guys from trends would you know approach them and they would say hey we'd like to you know shoot your car and they go nah, i really want rk to do it or i want jer to shoot it and they said and so we got to the point where they would promise these guys the world they would say well if we could shoot your car we'll give you five pages or six pages and they'd go hmm, okay well we, you know it's going to be on the cover and and it was and so then they would go well let me think about that so then they'd go back to rk and they say well trans just promised me six pages in the cover and he'd start laughing he go you too and he <laughs> says do you know that that's pretty much what they tell everybody and it just got to the point where the guys wanted their bag their car in a magazine that had good circulation and and it uh, and it would come out looking good. It, there wasn't much competition. They would right. they'd get some of the cars, and after a while, the, they just gave up. They couldn't get like you were saying the real high end cars in the eighties. Um, those cars, they they didn't get those cars. RK got those. Yeah, cars. you know, I I remember the first time my car was featured in a magazine. I was just super stoked that it was that it was Hot VWs because I had friends that were featured before in Vegas. Most of them were featured in VW Trends. Mm. And so for me, getting featured there, I was like, ah, I got the real magazine, yeah. guys. Hot yeah. VWs is the stamp of approval. But what what's kind of the, the, the interesting thing is I remember there was always like, oh, you better be careful because if, if you get shot for VW Trends, you won't get shot for Hot VWs. And you can't get both. You can get some magazine coverage in one and then a cover shot on the other, whatever the case is. But I do remember one one issue and I think one issue there was a Carmen Ghia, I think it was a Carmen Ghia convertible. No, it was a pink convertible. Pink convertible. Out of Colorado. Uh-huh. Randy stuff. And he pulled one, a fast one. And it's one of the few cars, if not the only car, that ever appeared on oh, both c- magazines. And he lied through his teeth. And he became and he was blackballed from that point on. Yeah. And it just even Dan Ledbetter, who was pretty aggressive on you know, getting that magazine going, even he was pissed. And yeah. he says, We ain't doing this anymore. And so there became something that we would do. Uh, we would cross over, and we we I talk. I'd call Henry up and say, Henry, you know, I want to shoot this guy's car. I just I want to make sure that you haven't shot it. And right. he would say, Yeah, I've talked to the guy, but I haven't. And so and we would share that because neither one of us wanted. To, no, you don't want to do duplicate coverage. Yeah, you you want your magazine yeah. to and be separate. I, and I can tell you that a number of times that a photo session got a brief a. a, a abruptly stopped when we heard that oh yeah well, henry shot it you know a couple days ago we go wait a minute what did you say yeah well trends shot it the other day and then we're going we're done and i'd open up the back <laughs> of camera like, put and everything pull, away pull the raw film out and hand it to him and go we're done wow so it it did happen and enough and we had there's some really strange uh stories about car features that went sideways and uh um you know, so it was something we tried to work together, but neither one of us wanted to shoot the same car. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the variety, and there's so much in the VW scene where you can you can get a diverse cross section of cars, show some of the latest stuff that's out there, and I think having that common respect between the magazines to where you know you'll make sure like you don't want to duplicate the coverage, and it's kind of like okay, I've already got a, a setup with this guy, let me get it handled, or yeah. vice versa. But when I was talking to uh, Cormac, Cormac was telling me that that you guys had a pretty good rivalry going for a while, and. And one yes, year, yes, we did. He got yeah. a gift from Hot VW. Well, we uh, we used to do all kinds of crazy stuff. We had, uh, we would give Christmas presents to our advertisers every year, and so every year we would buy, um, oh, a couple of hundred one-pound boxes of C's candy, and uh, we would give them to our, all our advertisers. Well, inevitably, we'd have extra ones left over for the staff. So, one of the guys used to work for the magazine had this knack of taking one bite out of a chocolate and if he didn't like it he'd put it back in the box and oh, we'd come go, on who's that guy lance bryson of course <laughs> i won't mention his name and and so we go lance you can't be doing this and so we got the uh, one of us got the idea i wonder who that was that we need to do this for our buddies over at vw trends so we had a box of C's candy, and we ate a bite out of every piece there, and then carefully put the black <laughs> little plastic back, sealed the thing up, put the ribbon back on it, and we sent it to to Henry DeKuyper for VW Trends. Merry Christmas from the staff of Hot VWs. So we waited, and we waited, and we figured, oh, we're going to hear something. We didn't hear anything. So oh, a couple weeks after Christmas, I see Henry at a show, and I said, so Henry, uh, uh, how'd you like your Christmas present? He goes, what Christmas present? Oh, that. He goes, I don't like candy, so I, 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 I don't eat candy, so I gave it away. I went, wait a minute. You gave it away? I said, gifted it. who did you give it to? He goes, oh, there's this girl at the office, and he said I was, that he was trying to date, and he gave it to her. I said, Henry, did you open that box by any chance? He goes, no, why? I went, so... What did this girl do afterwards? He said, well, she didn't exactly treat me all that good afterwards. And then we, I explained to him what was inside the box of candy. <laughs> that was one of them. Uh, that's too funny. That is too funny. So now going on to um, your cars. Now, you've, you just recently, about what is it, about five, six years ago, you finished your 67? So there's the orange 67. Yeah, uh -huh. I, I spent like 14 years building that. And I think I started in 99 or something like that. And it was just the, the, the car build from hell. But it was just something I would do as I went along. And um, mainly, mainly is just that um, I didn't have that much time to work on it because I was working every weekend on the magazine. And uh, so it just took me a long time to do. But then as I got some money together and I, you know, was able to finish and, you know, took it to Buddy Hale and Buddy, you know, did all the body work and paint. And um, I did, so, you know, he did some of the pan assembly. I did some of the assembly and um, got it finished. And uh, like I said, it ended up taking me 14 years to build the car. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of neat ideas in there. Uh, but I tell you, I just don't drive the car. Uh, because I'm so far, you know, I, like I was t saying earlier before lunch is I'm a hundred miles away from, uh, Nick's burgers or, uh, the garden grove on main street. And so it's, it's not the, a practical car to drive a uh, hundred or 200 miles round trip with that much compression and the five speed and all that stuff. And I just don't enjoy driving it 
that long. So it, it, it tends to sit in the garage a lot. And my other car is a 67 convertible. Right. And that's a real original car. Um, and it just does, it's a, it's, does everything right, and I, I enjoy driving that much more. So that car, I'll drive all the way to, you know, I'll drive that two, 300 miles, and it won't even miss a beat. Yeah, it's funny. You drive those cars, those those really stock ones, and they're dead reliable. Like, yeah. sit for six months, turn the key, fires yeah. right up. I mean, it makes us question why we do what we do. Yeah. And then you get in your 67 and, and stomp the throttle, and, yeah, you remember why you did what you did, yeah. right? And it's, it just... Uh, when I drive the convertible, because it's got the smell of the old jute pads in it, and it brings me back into the 60s when I first my first exposure with my older brother, his VW, and our friend of ours that had VWs in the late 60s, and going to the beach. And it brings me back to that point when, you know, that bugs were slow and you had, a, uh, you had to, to downshift on the freeway to make a hill. And it just, yeah. it, and I, I really enjoy it. It's just something that gives me a lot of pleasure. No, I, uh, I I can't agree with you more. I mean, it's uh, one of my favorite things is the is the smell of that horsehair interior. You know, like when you smell that in an original Volkswagen in the desert, it gets a specific yeah. smell when it cooks when it cooks in the desert for a long time. It, uh, it it's got it brings back tons of memories yeah. for me yeah. of the first car that I found. So yeah, I completely understand what you're yeah. saying. So so you worked for Hot VWs for quite a while until really the ending of the magazine so i i started in 77 so march of 77 and and then i my last month so then i retired in uh june of 2015 so 38 years yeah and um the magazine continued for about another year before uh right publishing shut down so i pretty much ran it all the way out as far as i thought it would go um, I was getting tired of uh, doing the same old thing, um, and I'm, I'm always looking for a challenge in the story. And so one of the last things that I did there was I did a one-shot on buses, all about Type 2s or something like that. And I did that over and above working on the magazine every month and uh, uh, did that uh, as I went along. And I enjoyed doing those one-shots, that book you said, uh, you know, customizing and restoration and and two or three engine books i did those too and uh i really enjoyed doing those it was the whole the whole package and uh, so i was you know i think by 2015 i was ready i I decided that i really didn't need to work full-time um and uh, i could see that the magazine it just wasn't going um in the right direction or i should say i could see that the handwriting was on the wall that something needed to change and do you think how much of how much of the magazine's demise, which was then revised by by Shin, how much of that do you think is is circumstantial based on the current media and marketing oh, aspect of the world now? You know, trying to market a, a print magazine anymore is so difficult. Uh, the one of the biggest problems is newsstands. You know, it used to be every 7-Eleven you went to, every grocery store had a newsstand rack. And so we would fight to get in there. And being a small magazine, we, you know, we did very good in 7-Elevens. Uh, and some chains we did good, other chains we just couldn't penetrate. And so as time went on, the the newsstands got smaller and smaller. And in, in, in a lot of stores, they took the newsstands completely out. So print magazines as a whole, especially a small vertical publication like, hot VWs, it has less and less outs 
uh, places where people could find it. And that hurts circulation, the new readership, because they can't find it. And so that became a big issue. And, um, and then not getting new subscribers or excuse me, new newsstand readers affects the new subscribers. So it's a, unfortunately, it's uh, the circulation starts dropping, and I think it's common with just about every magazine out there. Yeah, um, you know, with with the change of how people access information all the time, especially yeah. with now the internet's and web and and the websites being so easy to build and all these things, it's amazing that people that are building cars. You know, the kind of the, the, the thing people look forward to with the magazines is the fir- the first look at something. You know what I mean? The first look at a Volkswagen. And when you've already seen it on the Internet 500 times, yeah. it kind of loses that zeal. Boy, that that in spades. And I think that's a big problem with the magazines is that they're trying to compete with the Internet and it, it ain't going to work. And one of the things that I, I, I do not like seeing is there's way too much event coverage. And I think. You know, event coverage is one of the easiest things you find on Facebook because, you know, by the time the event's not even over, there's already 200 photos of every car there. So, like you said, you know, six months later, the magazine comes out. You go, well, I've already seen all this. And I, I, and I think that's a mistake. And I think the magazines needs to be much more picky on the events that they cover and forget all these small events, you know, put them on Facebook or put them on the website, but forget about it and spend, give the reader what they can't get anywhere else. And that's technical and how to. And that's what I'm sitting here thinking as we're talking right now, I'm thinking the highest value of all the magazines that I had, if I had to keep one, it would be the one that's got all the technical data and all that good stuff because it's a resource guide, you know? And I think there's, I think there's huge value because now as we're talking about this, I'm thinking like, okay, the magazines are near and dear to me because it's what inspired my my desire and my drive. And if you'd ask my wife, um, I've, I've got a fire hazard of magazines in my home, and she doesn't understand why I keep them. As a matter of fact, I, I opened the trash can the other day, and in my son's back bathroom, I had a bunch of magazines. And these were like car audio magazines from 97, something like that. I opened the trash can. I saw magazines. I go, what are these doing in here? And she's like, stop. They're magazines you don't even look at anymore. They're they're ten years old or more, and blah 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 blah. But they were stuff that I just there was a cool car or something yeah. that I kept it. But you know, I th- I'm thinking like if I were in the magazine, if you had to be in the magazine business, I know you're shudder to think this, but if you had to be in the mag magazine business now, and create a new magazine, what would your focus be? Well, like I said, it would be. The car features, obviously, would be a big part of it to, to showcase the new cars. And I, I do like what Shin has done with the book in giving the car features more pages. And that's something that we just fought with because we went for more stories to give a wider audience uh, interest in the book as opposed to fewer stories but more pages. But looking back at it, looking what Shin has done, I do really like that. And I think the readers uh, appreciate seeing much more details, uh, coverage of these cars. So I would continue doing the car features, uh, and I would cut the event coverage by three quarters, maybe one a month or two a month at the most. Yeah. We're under attack. Yeah, I think so. Listen, that's the great thing about you guys sitting here with us over here at Dale's Diner in uh, Lakewood. Is it Lakewood we're in? Or, yes, uh, yeah. We're in Lakewood. And you guys get to experience just two, a couple of dudes hanging on a street corner having a conversation. Yeah. So, uh, and 
So I think the the book really needs to get more get back into what what it encourages the reader to to work on his car and that's not event coverage it's 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 yeah. working on it and modifications and, and i'm and i'm thinking about my car right so my 51 split window has been at buddy hell shop for a while and i'm sitting here thinking as we're discussing this everybody gets excited to show off their goods and i'm sitting here thinking like I think I'm going to try to keep my car completely under wraps, have it shot for the magazine first before its first show. They would appreciate it. You know, I, I think I there's huge value in that because the magazines, for people to be able to get the real good, detailed, professionally shot images of the magazine, I think that's going to give the magazines value. So I think if people that are out there building cars are more focused on less exposure because I think everybody wants to be famous. That's why you want to be in the magazine. But in, I, I look at the magazines as periodicals that are documenting a, a, a place in time in history. You know, as you go back through your magazines, you can take your segments of your eighties cow looks and then your billet looks and then all the different phases of the scene. And I think it's great to be able to, to be able to be part of that. You know, I, I wanted to go do some land speed stuff. I had Burley Burlow on the podcast, and I wanted to go do some land speed stuff. Why? Because I'd like to get my name written down in history somewhere for something mm. if I could take a record, you know. So it, it's part of that that lineage being part of the history. So maybe all you guys listening out in podcast land that are building a car, maybe lean back on the pictures of the car that you're building and reach out to some of the people that are publishing these awesome magazines that we're out and we're able to still enjoy today and talk to them about, you know, doing a photo shoot and then getting that car featured in the magazine before it's debuted, I think would be would be pretty awesome. It may be a reversal of building up the hype, you know, because sometimes back in the yesteryear before the internet, before instant, like you said, 200 pictures of an event on the Instagram, on, on the internet before the event's even over, Maybe it's the buildup now because it was the reverse buildup before. You'd see it in the magazine. You couldn't wait to see it live. You couldn't wait to see it live because you'd see three, four, five pictures. Then you wanted to see it in person. And then now it's like you've seen it, you've seen it, you've seen it. So the unveiling or the debut of the car has kind of like fizzled like, yeah, I agree. I've seen it, seen it all. I agree. And I I think that needs to change if they want to survive. So that. I mean, I, I, and I, since we're discussing magazines, I've seen the magazines try to go with digital editions, and I just don't think they work. I, I used to, I used to get a, a nine eleven magazine, and they're like, oh, digital. So I had, I was, iPad came out. I was first to get an iPad. I'm a, I'm a techie guy, and something about the tactile feel of a magazine, you know what I mean? The portability. The uh, I don't know what it is, but, uh, you know, I've never, you know, even when you can swipe the pages and turn the pages and pinch and zoom and all stuff, it just doesn't have the same feel. One of the things that that became a very apparent is why people kept screaming at us. You guys need to do a digital book. I would you know, I don't I'm not interested in getting a print magazine. I want to I want to ditch. I want to read it on my iPod. And we kept hearing this over and over and over again. And we kept looking at the numbers and they just didn't make sense. But what it got down to is at the time, you know, Hot VW's uh, year subscription was twenty two ninety nine or twenty three ninety nine or whatever it was. What we found out is these people wanted it for free. <laughs> right. Yeah, you, they, hey, this is great. You send me a digital magazine and I can get read it. But but they go, okay, well, it's going to cost you twenty four ninety five. Oh, wait a minute, 
Well, it's free. They're like it's on the internet. And that's that's what what that's the 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 the, the, the elephant in the corner, I guess you could right. say, <laughs> is that <clears throat> they don't want to pay full pop for it. They want it. <clears throat> Excuse me. They want to be able to get it like Facebook. They can just reel free. through it and see everything from the octo meet that we were just at right now, and that'd be the end of it. They don't want to pay for it, and so I'm seeing the numbers of people signing up for. Uh, a digital copy just isn't there. Yeah. No, I. It, it, it's interesting to see the over the, to, to, to see what's going to take place in the landscape of print media in the near future because we've seen so many magazines go by the wayside. But and also in the same respect, here you have Air Mighty, right? The anomaly that comes out, and he and he goes for, we're going to do a really big, high quality magazine that's going to cost you a lot of money. And I don't know what the success level is of it. I know I've bought them because I'm a tactile magazine guy. It could be a generational thing. You know, people, younger kids aren't wanting things that stick around. If they can get a digital, a digital aspect of it, they're, they're fine with that. You know, but it's interesting how that magazine has seemed to take off and their, their content coverage is more specifically about the vehicles. You know, it's like, content coverage and and so much of their photography in those magazines is more experienced photography like you look at something and it, it delivers an experience it's not a static mm-hmm. most of them are not static pictures of cars they're guys driving across europe to a show some some coverage of the the, the trip or the the fun part right. of it but you know it's it's, it's interesting how he's come about that because he's a younger guy he's, he's younger than yep. me yep and I and I and I'm curious to see what the long term range is on it. And I, I wish it well because I love it. It's a good quality book. Again, a periodical, a, a documented piece of history. But uh, it's it's going to be surprising to see where where this direction takes us. Because as much as I love, I mean, even what we're doing now, the podcast is more of a people are used to having information delivered right to them okay all i'm asking you now instead of turn pages and read is just listen Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so it's like less involvement and more you're getting out of it which is the direction that things have gone so it should be should be interesting to see that i mean it's it's kind of a bummer to see the magazines go by the wayside i mean you were around when vw were you guys surprised when vw trends died is abruptly yes but we kind of figured we were watching it pretty closely and one thing that we keep track of is pages of ads Mm -hmm. and when they got below 20 pages of ads we knew that they were on death's door that was you're paying for the magazine at that point that's kind of the mathematical calculation and when there's their number of uh they did a lot of heavily discounted multi-year subscriptions and that was another death so here you give you practically given the magazine away for 24 months or 36 months now you've got their money not much and now you got to fulfill that magazine every month for the next two or three years that's a huge burden and so we were watching all of this happen um and so when it got the when the uh, advertising got below 20 pages we kind of knew that i don't know how much longer uh, they could continue on, but the abruptness of how they just called Ryan at home one night and says, uh, "Hey, basically, uh, you don't have to come in tomorrow. The book's dead. Uh, we'll mail you your check. Um, we're not going to do another magazine." And that was the end of it. And then wow. uh, the publishing company contacted us very shortly thereafter, 
and wanted us to know if they asked us if we wanted to buy the rights to the magazine. Well, the only thing that we were even remotely interested was the archives. Sure. Because they had, you know, there's stuff by uh, Bob Clark that goes back into the late 70s when they did the first four issues. You know, some early bug in, and Bob's it was a good photographer. Yeah. So there was some interest there, but they wanted somebody to take over the liability of the subscribers, and we knew that was a lost cause. I mean, are you going to pay us, or who's paying who? Right. And they didn't want to separate the archives uh, any way, shape, or form, and they, basically, they wanted to get rid of all their back issues, and it, we just it, we said no, no thanks. And so what, what? So then, what happens with all the archives? Well, good question. Uh, that you know, those pub that that publishing company has been bought and sold and name changed and moved around so much. Your guess is as good as mine. Where all those archives are, because there's value to that. Oh, absolutely. Somewhere. Could you so, imagine if that stuff's in a storage unit somewhere? It oh, goes sure up it for is. auction. Just, you know. <laughs> and some guy just gets a load of VW stuff. And unfortunately, uh, you know, Peterson Publishing uh, for years uh, had a, 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 you know, all these archives of uh, years of the history of hot rod and drag racing and stuff. And at, at one point, the beans counter said, why are we keeping this stuff? We're not using this old stuff. And they started throwing the dumpster. Well, some of the old photographers found out they were dumped, so they were going dumpster diving at night up there at Peterson and getting it out. Well, when word got back to the bean canners that people were taking this and they realized it was worth money, they stopped. And yeah. thank God they did. But I'm sure a lot of magazines like Drag News, all those were uh, the history of Drag News newspaper from the 50s and 60s. Uh, all those, I mean, that's invaluable history of drag racing all got thrown away because they were in a storage building over in i think uh laguna beach and uh they stopped paying the rent on it and it you know it was one of those um storage wars where they opened the door up and everybody said who wants this crap and they threw it all away oh my gosh that would just kill me you just think of all that documented history all those irreplaceable things exactly you know photographs that were only taken once and the negatives are there and all that stuff and you can't now. You're making a copy of a copy of a copy. You know. Yeah. So. Jeez. So, what's next for you? What's on your agenda? Well, I, to me, the photography is still what I really enjoy, and that's what the most challenging and the most rewarding. Um, and so I'm picky about what I shoot, and I, I, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I don't need to do it anymore. I, I do it once in a while just because I miss it and I like doing it. Um, so recently I shot, um, I think the car that I enjoyed doing the most here in recent years was the Puerto Rican drag car. Yeah. And that front engine car, I started watching that a few years ago. And this car, to me, impressed me so much with the technology in it and what they were doing. And when they came out of the box and it was running 750s, 760s right out of the box. And so I thought, I need to follow through. So I went last year, I went to uh, uh, Orlando and watched them race and they ran 720 that night and so uh and then i got to know teddy figueroa really well and the 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 driver gabriel and the tuner tony and all the clutch guys and so teddy says um you need to come to puerto rico while we race this car so i've gone back there twice uh and just photographed the car and, uh, you know, they've run 718, 188. And even that's, uh, they were go- driving through the clutch probably 10 mile an hour. 
And wow. so that car is a 200 mile an hour, six second car. And so um, that's the stuff I really like doing. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in uh, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And Anthony Lamas, who's a chef that's on TV once in a while, Bar Rescue. Yeah. He's one of the chefs that goes into these chaotic bars and tries to make sense out of right, their, right. the kitchen. And he has a, a beautiful restaurant in Louisville, Chavisi. And so uh, he's got a, a bug and a bus, and we had talked before, so I went back there and shot his car and spent a few days with him, and it was a blast. Just, you know, he's one, he's a great guy and a wonderful cook, but uh, we got some really good photos in um, uh, the old part of uh, Louisville on a Sunday when, uh, when nobody was in town, and so I enjoy that kind of stuff. So any, uh, any possibility of you putting out a book? Not now. Uh, I, there was a time that I wanted to do a book, uh, but I think Kisum pretty much handled the California look book and a lot of the early drag racing stuff. So I, I don't think I, I don't think there's a need for it. Um, he did such a good job. I, I, I think I would be backtracking over the same material. Um, I kind of doubt it. There was a time that I wanted to do a book not about Volkswagens, but Ford Anglias, which mm -hmm. is my other passion. Yeah. And that's something that there really isn't a good book, a definitive book about year-to-year -year changes, VIN numbers, chassis numbers, modifications, stuff that is so common with Volkswagens. And the Ford just never kept track of all that stuff. And I, for years, I've collected photographs, and I've gone to the Henry Ford Museum and Dagenham collecting information, but I just don't think it's in my blood anymore yeah um, i like doing the stories uh, next weekend i'm going to go to bakersfield for the nhra hot rod reunion and shooting that oh are you going to bakersfield yeah, next bakersfield year? next weekend next and weekend. i did the march meet for gasser wars magazine and i love shooting gasser stuff yeah and so i you know and i love bonneville so i just i i'd rather do that i don't think i want to be um i don't want to take on a project quite of that magnitude anymore You're something that's two years out to finish nah i don't yeah. want to do that nah no well, thanks. man, I, I tell you, I, I've appreciated everything you've done, all the things you've contributed, you. and part of the history that you've built for me through your pictures. But, you know, I'm just a kid in a desert town over in Las Vegas <laughs> standing next to a cactus flipping a coin <laughs> looking at a magazine, and I, I can tell you I, I wholeheartedly appreciate uh, everything that you've uh, done, all the past photographers and editors at Hot VWs that have been involved with creating, putting to print that passion and those goals for me to one day have a car in the magazine yeah. and those types of things. So uh, I'm honored to have you on the podcast, man. You're welcome back. Yeah, Any pleasure. Um, anybody wants to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you for, cause I'm sure you'll do if people want you to feature their car or some things like that. Yeah, they can reach I, I out only, to yeah, I do some photo sessions. I said, I'm really picky. It's gotta be a real special car with a special um, story. Uh, um, you know, I, I figured I've shot almost a thousand Volkswagens, wow. so I don't need the practice. And um, and there's a few friends of mine that have contacted me that have special requests. I said, you know, get Stefan to do it or, you know, or, or you know, whoever. And they said, nah, I, you know, we, we'd like your style. And I appreciate that. It means a lot to me. And so a few of those guys, I'm going to make a supreme effort and come up and see if we could do something really special. But uh, probably the best way is just through my Facebook page. That's probably the easiest way because I watch that pretty closely and, and I do respond to, you know, people sending me messages. But uh, I'm flattered that anybody would want me to, you know, an old fart like me shoot their car because <laughs> um, there's some really talented guys out there now. So, um, you yeah. know. 
Well, hey, man, I appreciate you for coming on the podcast. I'm glad we got to sit here over at Dale's Diner and, Dale's just, Diner. and just enjoy uh, a yeah. lunch this afternoon and a little bit of conversation, man. So for sure, we'll have you. I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast for something else. Hey. And uh, anybody else that needs to get a hold of Dean, you know, you can track him down on Facebook. And uh, anything you wanted to leave us with? No, it just, um, you know, it's it's been a, a quite a, a ride to be, you know, working for the magazine and in BW the industry for the last 40 some odd years and to see all the changes. And it, you know, we we're just at the Octobeat this morning and to see this still the enthusiasm that these people have with these cars is just it's 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 reassuring that it's going to be around for a long time. Yeah, no, I agree, man. It's a, it's it's an ever evolving hobby. And although some things we might not get and some things we get, yeah, yeah. you know, I think it's uh, it, it's got a long, a long shelf life for it. Yep. So. Sounds good. Hey, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, we will we'll have you back on here again. Sounds right, good. Buddy? Thanks, Bill. All right. Thanks. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. We also have some pretty exclusive news for you. So some of you guys have waited to the end of this podcast. You get to hear some exclusive news next week. We'll be talking to the ex MP chief, uh, Philip Kane, who was working over there at MP, uh, resigned last week. So, uh, tracked him down, got him on the phone and, uh, we talked about the situation, everything's going on. Things are floating around and all kinds of conversation and whatnot. So we'll get the man himself on the podcast next week. You guys get to hear the inside scoop because your boy at Let's Talk Dubs is working on it. So some shout-outs for this week for the guys that went and pumped us up on Facebook. We got Dub Fab USA. That's my dog, Mike, over there in uh, Hurricane, Utah. Dub Fab, shout-out to Dub Fab. You guys go check out his website. He's got some pretty legit stuff. Also, uh, one of the guys' supporters, uh, Ed Simon, uh, bought, a dupe, uh, bought a few sticker packs to support the podcast. So next week. Good stuff, guys. Lots of good stuff. So don't forget, if you guys have got any questions or topics you want to discuss or connections that you have, people we can uh, bring back in the VW scene that have been out for a little bit and we can track them down, uh, shoot me an email at bill at letstalkdubs.com. Bill at letstalkdubs.com. Until next week, guys, hope you enjoyed it because I enjoyed doing it. Later.